13 verses this morning. The death of John the Baptist. And uh, Matthew writes kind of thematically. He's got a reason for putting what he puts, where he puts it. And we will see the flow as we get into our study this morning. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts as we study together. And uh, we just thank you for the living word and for how it ministers to our souls. Uh, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we thank you for the the living word and for you being the living God who ministers the truth to our hearts. Do so this morning. Help me to teach accurately and clearly. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, note the outline there. We have worked our way through up to chapters 14 through 16, the revelations of the king. The first 10 chapters present various lines of evidence showing that Jesus is indeed the prophesied Christ, uh, Messiah God. And then as uh, he has presented himself in effect to the nation, we have the response of the nation in chapters 11 and 12, which is really one of rejection. And then Christ responds with a form of judicial judgment in the form of parables. Uh, The parables concealed further kingdom truth from those rejecting Christ and also revealed further kingdom insight to the true disciples. And a key point in the parables is that the kingdom offered is now being postponed. It was legitimately offered. John the Baptist came on the scene, uh, repent, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ came, followed, saying the very same thing. Uh, The kingdom was being offered on the condition of repentance. But when the people, the nation, largely refused to repent, the kingdom was then postponed. In order for the kingdom to come, Israel must accept Jesus as her Messiah, and that was precisely the problem. They were outwardly enthusiastic about his miracle ministry. I mean, who doesn't like free breakfast, right? I mean, if you've got a chance to go to a motel, same cost, a chance to go to a motel without breakfast or a motel that has breakfast, which motel are you going to go to? You're going to go to the free breakfast, right? I mean, you paid for it, but you know what I mean. Uh, And who doesn't like healing? I mean, we like health, right? Half of us are out sick. We like health. We're praying for a restoration of health. Jesus was doing these things, healing all the people, and, and, you know, on occasion, we'll get to it next time, uh, free food. Uh, miraculously provided. They liked that. Oh, they were all about that. But when it came to the person of who Jesus Christ was, we see this in John chapter 6, as, as, as he makes the issue who he is, the crowd begins to go away. So much so that at the end he says to the disciples, will you also go away? I mean, when you got right down to, yeah, they liked the miracles. But when it got to the person of Christ, they just couldn't accept that. They rejected his lordship, and hence the kingdom has now been delayed. The period of kingdom delay is marked by three realities, and note these. Number one, during the kingdom interlude, believers and unbelievers coexist in the big tent kingdom movement, commonly called Christendom. Number two, the great issue in the kingdom movement is who will prove to be genuine. We're talking about this period of interlude this period of kingdom postponement. In this, during this time, the issue is who will prove to be genuine and ultimately go into the kingdom. Uh, the message is now going forth. Uh, whosoever will can come. And we're ultimately, all things are moving towards the kingdom. And the ultimate issue is who's going to be there 
Well, it all comes down to what we do with Jesus Christ. That was the issue at his first coming. That's the issue right now in the interlude. And that will be the issue at his second coming. Those who accept Christ will go into the kingdom. And number three, those that are truly kingdom children can expect to be persecuted for it before the kingdom comes. And that's really where we segue into chapter 14. If anyone initially expected to go into the kingdom at Christ's first coming, it was John the Baptist. As I say, he preached the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, indicating imminent judgment on those who refuse to repent and thereby go into the kingdom. But alas, it was not to be. The kingdom offer was rejected. And there was now to be a delay. And in this interim, the true kingdom people would not be appreciated and would be persecuted and often killed. And exhibit A of this reality was John the Baptist, who became, in effect, the very first martyr, as it were, for Christ. In Matthew 13, we have the reality of kingdom delay introduced, and then in chapter 14, we see the fallout of that reality. The premier prophet, John the Baptist, who laid out the terms for the kingdom to come, is killed, which becomes indicative of where we are at during this time of interlude, during this time of kingdom delay. It is amazing what passes for leadership in the world. Amen? Amen. It is amazing for what passes for leadership in the world. And that is nothing new. You realize the Herodian family was completely crazy. They were crazy people. Crazy people in charge governmentally over God's people in a big way during the time of Christ and during the early church days. They represented the governmental authorities that God's people were under. And as we see in our text today, they totally rejected the Messiah's herald in the person of John the Baptist and by extension, the truth of Jesus as Messiah. Well, we pick it up, chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Herod the Great, so-called, founded what we know as the Herodian dynasty. Uh, he ruled from 37 B.C. until 4 B.C. And he was an Edomite. Uh, that means he was a descendant of Esau. And he was a builder and a tyrant in combination. Uh, Herod the Great is called Herod the Great really because he was a great builder. Uh, he had nine or ten wives, you know, historians debate, nine or ten, nine or ten wives. And he thought nothing about killing them if they happened to uh, get in his way. And he thought nothing about killing his own children either, if they crossed him for any reason. Like I say, he was really crazy, paranoid crazy, sinfully crazy, as were his children. It was Herod the Great who had all the infants killed in the Bethlehem area in an attempt to wipe out the newborn king of the Jews. Like I say, extremely paranoid. And Herod had a good number of sons. And, and after he died, they divided up uh, the region that he had ruled over. The Herod in view that we're talking about here in Matthew 14, 
uh, was, uh, is called Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. And tetrarch means a ruler over a fourth part of the kingdom. He ruled over Galilee and Perea from 4 BC until AD 39. And this is the very area where most of John the Baptist and also Christ's ministry took place. So uh, note the, the map here. Uh, this uh, Herod Antipas, he had uh, Galilee and Perea. After you know, Herod the Great, his father died, he was the son who had, had this area. And again, John the Baptist, a lot of his ministry down here. Christ's ministry, a lot of ministry up here, Galilee. So, uh, you know, those are the areas. By the way, his first wife uh, was from uh, uh, Nabatea, down in this area here, um, closely related to Saudi Arabia today. Just FYI as we go on in our study here. But Herod Antipas was the one who murdered John the Baptist, and later he was one of the uh, secular authorities that Christ was brought up on trial before, as we see in, in Luke 23. And uh, so what we have here in our study this morning is really background on what specifically happened to John the Baptist. Herod Antipas had John the Baptist beheaded, and now he lived with a troubled conscience, knowing that he was a just and holy man, as noted in Mark chapter 6, verse 20. It's not like uh, uh, Herod Antipas didn't have any idea about who John the Baptist was. He did, and he knew he was a holy man. He knew he was a man of God. Mark 6.20 tells us so. So when Herod heard about the miracles that Jesus was doing after he killed John, he superstitiously assumed that this must be John the Baptist back from the dead. Warren Wearsby says, The voice of conscience is a powerful voice, and it can be the voice of God to those willing to listen. This is what I call uh, this uh, superstitious uh, thinking of Herod that's kind of relating what's going on here in Jesus' ministry to John the Baptist, uh, it's, it's an example of what I call the long arm of the conscience. Many years after Joseph's brothers had viciously abused him and sold him into slavery and then claimed he was dead, their conscience was still very much at work. As Joseph's brothers later went down into Egypt because they were looking for food, Unbeknownst to them, they were dealing with a leader down in Egypt, unbeknownst to them, who happened to be their brother Joseph, who had been exalted to second in the, in the kingdom. And uh, this leader, Joseph, unbeknownst to them, was very rough with them initially. And immediately their conscience went back to Joseph and what they had done to him. Uh, here in Genesis chapter 42... 21. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Isn't that interesting? Of course, Joseph, uh, you know, is listening in on this. They're clueless, but he, it's the interesting intrigue there. Now, it had been many years, and yet the long arm of the conscience was very much at work in these brothers. And so with Herod. As wicked as he was, yet the conscience is a hard thing to get away from. Yes, it is possible to come to the place of having a seared conscience, but I think that involves a horrible process. The most holy man Herod had ever known was John the Baptist. 
And so his guilty conscience, combined with superstition, jumped to this conclusion that this must, the ministry of Jesus must be John risen from the dead. And, of course, this was also fed by the rumor mill of others, as we see in Luke chapter 9. Well, in truth, John the Baptist had done no miracles. His ministry was strictly that of being a herald, announcing and preparing the way for the Messiah. And so we read, John chapter 10, verse 41, Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all things that John spoke about this man were true. So John didn't perform any sign miracles, but he said Jesus would. And the things that John said about Jesus were fulfilled in Jesus. Well, we now come to verses 3 through 12, and we have what is commonly called here a literary flashback which gives us the historical background on the death of John the Baptist. Verse 3, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Now Herod had put John in prison because John dared to call Herod to account for his immoral relationship with Herodias. Now, Herodias was the daughter of another half-brother by the name of Aristobulus. Although she was a niece, she had married her brother, uh, uh, this Aristobulus' brother, which was her uncle, by the name of Philip. But now yet another brother, Herod Antipas, who was also her uncle, had now taken her to be his wife. You following this? It was all in the family. (laughs) Herod Antipas had been married to Artis, who was the daughter of a Nabataean king. However, upon marrying Herodias, Artis was sent packing back to her father in Nabataea. And the result was ensuing war. It was very messy. Into this context comes the fearless John the Baptist, telling Herod that it was not lawful for him to have Herodias as his wife. That was speaking truth to power. And neither Herod nor Herodias appreciated it. Now, many commentators believe that John was probably referring, when he says it's not lawful, he was probably referring to Leviticus 18, which deals with all manner of of sexual perversion. Twelve different times, uh, at least twelve different types of sexual perversion are mentioned in Leviticus 18. Now, there God tells his people, Israel, not to behave as the pagan Canaanites did in all their sexual perversion. It is striking in Leviticus 18 the accountability concerning sexual immorality that God holds over the heads of these pagan people. And I'm making this point because the Herods were very godless, immoral people. But so were the Canaanites. God gave people conscience. And even nature itself testifies of the wrongfulness of gross immorality. And although the Canaanites did not know God at all, he still held them accountable for their gross immorality. 
Notice Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24, 25. Do not defile yourself with any of these things. For by all these, the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Why? With what? Sexual immorality. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it. And the land vomits out its inhabitants. And then he goes on to say, a few verses later, in that same chapter, verse 30, Therefore you shall keep my ordinance, so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs, which were committed before you, and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. Why should they not do these things? Well, because God says so. In light of who he is, that's good enough. That's all the answer that is needed. They needed to realize that he is a holy God who clearly demonstrates that his holy standard involves sexual purity as seen in the reason for wiping out the Canaanites. Now it should be noted that there are no Canaanites today. Have you met a Canaanite? If you have, please bring them to my office. I would like to meet one. There, there are no Canaanites today. As a people group, they were destroyed. And they illustrated the sexual perversion of the prevailing culture that God's people are to be separate from. Sexual purity has everything to do with holiness. And it's a really big deal before God. I mean, it's one of the great prevailing sins in our world today. It's what sets us as Christians apart. We are to be sexually pure. Not that we can't fall, we can. That's why we have all the warnings in the scripture. David, a man after God's own heart, fell. It, we can fall. But this is our sanctification. This is what sets us apart. Well, as we come to the New Testament, in the book of Romans, we find that pagans suppress the truth of God. And as they do so, their wicked hearts are darkened. And in that rebellious darkness, God gives people over to a depraved mind resulting in all manner of sexual deviance and perversion. Consistently throughout the scriptures, sexuality is a holiness issue. Sexuality is a lordship issue. God demands that he be lord in this area of the believer's life. Sexual immorality is completely incompatible with God's holiness. And God's people are to have no fellowship with it. Sexual purity is to define God's people. It is, like I say, a key thing that sets us apart. We don't have to wonder about this. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God. Your sanctification, this is what sets you apart. Sanctification means set apart. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, if you want to get in trouble with the world today, if you, if you want to get in big trouble, hot water, I mean, uh, if, if you want them to cancel you, uh, just take a public stand against immor immorality. The world will hate you for it. And they will say, you are a hater. How dare you take a strong stand like this? This is the premier issue, a premier issue that separates God's true people from the world. Unknown author and we get the spirit of what he's saying here. The ungodly like religion in the same way they like lions, either dead or behind bars. 
They fear religion, you understand what he's saying, when it breaks loose and begins to challenge their consciences. Yeah, that's what happened with John the Baptist. Dared to speak the truth to power in a way that bothers you, bothers your conscience. Josephus, the Jewish historian, reported that John was imprisoned at Machaerus, which was a fortress located east of the Dead Sea. So note on the map here, here's where this was happening, uh, east of the Dead Sea, at this fortress that Herod Antipas had. Verse 5 continues. And although he wanted to put him to death, note that, Herod Antipas, he wanted to put... John to death. I mean, he was not happy with John for convicting him and speaking truth into his life about this uh, ungodly marriage. Although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Now, Herod Antipas was a fickle man, all over the map emotionally and spiritually. And John speaking out against Herod's immoral relationship with his niece, who was also his brother's wife, infuriated Herod. He was so angry that he wanted to kill John because of it. And yet politically, yet politically, he feared an uprising of the multitude if he did so. uh, Because everyone was counting him as a prophet, which he was. Now I say that Herod was fickle because on another score... Evidently, in other areas, Mark 6.20 says that Herod heard John gladly. You see, he didn't mind hearing John out on other matters. But when it came to the issue of his personal immorality, Herod didn't want to hear it. He gladly heard John until it got too personal. And then he wanted to kill him. And here is a truism. Until people are repentant, they don't love the truth and they don't want to hear it. And they often want to take it out on the messenger. They will hate those who expose them and call them to repentance. Unrepentant people do not appreciate being called to repentance. And here we see that Herod was also a fickle coward. He feared the multitude, as politicians tend to do. Public opinion swayed him and determined his course of action. So we see he was not a principled man. Verse 6, but, but he felt compelled not to put John to death because of the context politically. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. On the occasion of Herod's birthday, the entertainment was the daughter of his illegitimate, his now illegitimate wife, Herodias. Now, most commentators and everyone I read was pretty much in agreement that this daughter was probably somewhere between 12 and 14 years old. Uh, She was young enough to still be under the control and direction of her mother, as we see. And again, most commentators believe that this dance was sexually suggestive in nature, being provocative and sensual. And this is very much in keeping with the moral deviancy of Herod and company. Josephus tells us that this daughter was named Salome, whom I have in the past wrongly called Salami. Uh, She was named Salome, uh, who was the daughter of Herod Philip, who was the uncle of Herodias. So Herodias and her uncle Philip had this daughter named Salome. And now Herodias is married to another uncle named Herod Antipas. 
And it should also be noted that Salome later married another of Herod's son called Philip the Tetrarch, another Philip in the same family. But again, it was all in the family. Total moral perversion, family style, defined this family generally. Herod was, it seems, pervertedly pleased with this sensually provocative dance. And verse 7 says, Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now he must have really been infatuated to make this kind of an offer and to strengthen it with an oath. So it says in the cross, uh, you know, you got Mark chapter 6, Luke chapter 9. In the cross reference uh, in Mark chapter 6, it says, uh, even up to half the kingdom. As, as if to indicate he was very serious about this. <laughs> I, I really like this. I'm willing to give you half the kingdom. I swear it. Evidently, Herod and his company were very pleased sensually with this dance. And so she, verse 8, so she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And this almost comes off like a plot all along to get Herod to carry out this dirty deed. Certainly Herodias was right there to take advantage of this situation. In effect, she was playing her husband, manipulating him to do something he didn't really want to do for fear of the people, as already noted in verse 5. It is the mother, Herodias, behind the scenes, who is pulling the strings at this point. This really wasn't Salome's idea. This young girl wasn't her idea but rather that of her mother who coached her in what to request. And so under the influence of her wicked and bitter mother, she requested the head of John the Baptist on a platter. It seems to me everyone exploited this kid. Herod exploited her sensually. Her mother exploited her in the desire for personal revenge against John. Everybody's playing everybody here. Ed Glasscock says this, Something of man's depraved nature can be seen in the action of each of these three main players in this sad drama. The young girl used her seductive skill to lure the king into a vulnerable position. Herod foolishly promised before witnesses to give away up to half of his kingdom. And Herodias was so bent on revenge that she chose to kill a man who was already in prison. Verse 9, and the king was, this is Herod, and the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it be given to her. Note again the fickleness of Herod. In verse 5, he wanted to put John to death, but now in verse 9, he is sorry to do so. The word sorry means to be greatly distressed, to be grieved or disturbed to the point of distress. This really bothered Herod, but not enough to change course. Herod was a man captive to human opinion. He feared the multitude in verse 5, and now because of peer pressure of those who sat with him and observed him make this grandiose oath, because he didn't want to lose face, he commanded that John be beheaded and his head given to Salome. In doing so, Herod really put his ego above everything else. Even though he knew it was wrong, he violated all principles of right and wrong to save face in front of his audience. But again, the long arm of the conscience continued to follow him. He really was a fickle wimp 
We read in Luke 23, 8 that Herod had for a long time wanted to see Jesus do some miracle. Finally, when Jesus comes before him on trial, it says he for a long time wanted to see some miracle uh, from Jesus. And yet at the same time, in Luke 13, 31, Jesus was told that Herod wanted to kill him. And in response, Jesus said this, which is an interesting response. He said to them, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Seems to me Jesus was not the least bit intimidated by Herod. In fact, the word fox in Luke 13, 32 is feminine, meaning Jesus literally said, go tell that vexen, which is the feminine word for a, a, a female fox. Go tell that female fox. I don't know about you, but if somebody calls me a female fox, I'm not really going to be appreciating that too much. I don't think this was a compliment. In fact, I think this was probably Christ's way of saying he's really a wimp. He's a wimp. He's a female fox. Go tell that female fox. Perhaps the feminine indicates that in reality, the real power behind the throne was his wicked wife Herodias, as he was subject to her wicked impulses and manipulation. Verse 10 So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, being a fickle egomaniac, acting against all better principles of judgment. He sent and had John beheaded in prison. Verse 11, and his head was brought on a platter, given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. What a gory scene. Here John's bloody head was brought on a platter, on a big plate, and given to this young girl, age 12 to 14. Who does that? You, you try that, don't try that. If somebody tried that, I mean, you would be in jail for the rest of your life. I mean, you talk about just craziness. This is, this is, a, this is insane, absurd. But they gave it to the girl, age 12 to 14, who in turn presented it to her wicked mother. This is incredibly gross and sinfully depraved. These people were really hard people. Uh, even to depict it on the screen, as I, as I thought about, you know, just depict it. I thought, no, 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 that, that is totally inappropriate. It, it's, it's too much. Uh, this is gross beyond measure. These people had no regard for the life of the prophet. Herod knew he was a holy man. Says so in Mark 6.20. But had no regard, put himself, you know, I'm concerned about what people are going to think about me. My, my ego's here. Had no regard for the life of the prophet or the God he represented. Verse 12. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. John's disciples, they came and took the body, buried it. For the Jews, the proper disposal of the dead was consistent, consistently burial. People who were cursed were burned. They consistently practice burial. No mention is made of what happened to the head of John the Baptist. Perhaps Herodias kept it as sort of a morbid trophy over the man who dared call her and her uncle Herod out on their immoral relationship. I don't know, maybe she hung it on her wall, kind of like, you know, you go deer hunting and you find a, you know, put the head of that deer on. Maybe she put his head on the wall. I don't know what she did. We're not told what happened to the head. They buried the body. I don't know what happened to the head. Well, after burying John, his disciples went and told Jesus the forerunner had completed his mission. 
He pointed to Christ. He introduced Christ to the nation. He called them to repentance. He preached against sin. And what did he get for it? What did he get for it? Well, he got his head cut off for it. That's what he got. This life. Got his head cut off for it. John Walvoord says, When the disciples came to tell Jesus, it was another evidence of the growing rejection of Jesus and his message and a stark reminder of the awfulness of sin and unbelief. And attention was now solely on Jesus. John the Baptist had said of Jesus, He must increase, I must decrease. John has now completely faded from the scene, and with his passing, Jesus alone now took the stage of history. Verse 13. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Upon hearing the news that John the Baptist had been killed, Jesus got away all by himself. Now the question is, why did he do this? Well, some have suggested that perhaps Jesus was afraid that Herod would prematurely kill him also. But that doesn't square at all, as recorded elsewhere, clearly showing that Jesus was on God's timetable and nothing could get in the way of that. Still, he may have been avoiding a premature showdown with Herod, as the timing was not yet right. That could be. Also, there may be a couple of other things in view to consider. Number one, Jesus was fully human. You do realize that. He was fully human. Yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully human. Living in the context of humility, in which he was subject to all the struggles and challenges of humanity. When Christ's good friend Lazarus died, when Jesus came to the tomb, the Bible says, shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. He knew the experience of human emotion. Whatever was all involved here. There is a place for grieving the loss of loved ones. Death remains the last enemy. It is, a, it is an enemy. Believe me, <laughs> it's not pleasant. <laughs> and that last mile is a very hard one often. And the suffering that's involved and the gasping for one more breath, it's not a friend. It's the last enemy. And sometimes uh, when uh, loved ones die, as we face that last enemy, uh, the Bible says, uh, we do sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. I mean, talking about believers. When loved ones die, sometimes we need time to just get alone and process it. People process things a little differently, but often we need time, just some space. And it seems Jesus may have been getting that here. I mean, he was human. Perhaps this was part of Christ's human experience at this time. He knows what it is when a loved one dies. He was at all points tempted, yet without sin. And therefore, he, as our great high priest is there, he can sympathize with us in whatever we're going through. The Bible is clear that Christ had the full human experience. But he was also completely without sin. But there may also be something else in view here. In the parallel text in... Luke chapter 9, we read, verse 9, Herod said, John, I have beheaded. But who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. I mean, he's making out, he wants to see Jesus. 
When the fickle crowds rejected Jesus, he taught them in parables that they could not understand, thus denying them the privilege of further revelation. When wicked Herod wanted to see Jesus, he did not make himself available to him. You see, Christ does not perform just to gratify curiosity. He does not cater to those who are not serious about him. Clearly, Herod had heard about the great miracles that Christ was doing, as clearly stated in the Gospels. And yet he was not really open to where these sign miracles pointed, namely the truth of Jesus being Messiah God. Howard Voss uh, says this at this point, For a fuller explanation of verse 13, it is necessary to turn to Mark 6.30, where it is indicated that Jesus wanted to confer in private with his disciples who were just returning from a missionary tour of Galilee. This, then, would be a debriefing session, and in this context, the discussion no doubt also included some reflection on the cost of discipleship. It had just cost John the Baptist his life. Now, we have noted that verses 3 through 12 are a parenthetical interjection. So note the troubled conscience of Herod in verse 2 in relation to these powers at work in whom Herod thought was John risen from the dead. And then jump down to verse 13, showing that the multitudes were currently following Christ. If Herod thought that the ministry of Jesus was actually that of John risen from the dead, he undoubtedly would have been threatened by it. He was fascinated, and yet at the same time undoubtedly apprehensive. After all, the masses were following Jesus, and Herod feared the masses, as noted in verse 5. So verse 13 provides explanation as to why Herod was so worried and concerned about the ministry of Christ and perhaps shows why, as stated in Luke 13, that Herod wanted to kill him. Well, having presented himself and his messianic credentials to the nation on every level, the uniform response of both the nation's spiritual and secular leaders was essentially that of rejection. The experience of Christ at his first coming was that of humility, great humility, great rejection, and great suffering. So much for the kingdom coming as the Jews thought was going to immediately happen at the coming of Messiah. Yes, the kingdom was presented on the condition of repentance, but the people refused to accept Jesus for who he is as Messiah Lord, and therefore the kingdom could not come. The narrative, as presented by Matthew, shows that the rejection was very universal. Exceptions, of course, as God always has a remedy. The fickle crowd largely rejected the claims of Christ, although in a self-centered sort of way, they loved his miracles. They liked the healings and the free food, as I say. And even now in verse 13, we see the multitudes were still seeking after Jesus in search of more miracles. But again, Christ saw right through the superficiality of this crowd phenomenon. And because of it, he spoke to them in parables as seen in chapter 13. Even Christ's hometown people, those closest to him, humanly speaking, by background. Even they did not accept him, as we noted last time. And in keeping with the rejection of Christ as the Messiah was the rejection of John the Baptist, his forerunner. 
In the big scheme of Matthew, he is showing us that the trajectory of Christ's first coming took the, took the direction of rejection, which ultimately leads to the cross. John MacArthur says, John the Baptist was the first martyr to die for Christ, and it seems certain that Jesus took this opportunity to further prepare his disciples for what lay ahead of them. You see, as we study this gospel on the king, as it's themed, Jesus the Messiah king, we see the disciples were expecting the kingdom to come. I mean, they knew the basic truth that the Messiah brings in the kingdom. And yet, now, even the Messiah's forerunner had been beheaded. What to make of this? How does this fit in? It didn't seem consistent with the kingdom expectations. But as noted, the rejection of Christ at his first coming meant there would now be a time of delay. And during this time of delay, Christ's followers would generally be persecuted and killed. The martyrdom of John the Baptist denoted a major turning point in the kingdom program. Now, yes, God is sovereign over all, but he's letting this thing play out as we have noted. The end of Christ's ministry involved him preparing the disciples to expect coming persecution and rejection, even as the forerunner had experienced and Jesus went on to experience. Notice what he says. Last words, important words, the upper room discourse, the night before he's crucified. He said many things like this. This is just one example. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Uh, What is he preparing them for? Well, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming. Whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. This is coming. You know, (laughs) there's a kingdom delay here. And in in this time of delay, it's not going to be easy. The ministry of John the Baptist is one great proof in the Bible for the truth that Jesus is the Messiah fulfilling the Scriptures. 700 years before the time of Christ, Isaiah 40 verse 3 predicted a forerunner to come preparing the way of the Lord. Clearly, the Messiah was to have a forerunner emerging from the wilderness. And this was fulfilled to the letter in the person of John the Baptist. Now, you just can't predict 700 years in advance of your life and make it happen. Only God can sovereignly arrange these kinds of details. And he did. It all fits perfectly with Jesus being the true Messiah as prophesied by the prophets in the Old Testament who would have such a forerunner. So John the Baptist is an example of the fact that we just don't know the specific plan that God has for our lives. John did not expect to end this way. You see, John fully expected to go into the kingdom. Even now, it's going to happen. It's at hand. Well, that was true. The offer was right there. But it didn't happen that way. Yes, John will go into the kingdom, ultimately, but the timing was to come later. It made no sense to him at the time what was happening to him in terms of what he was suffering. just didn't fit with his kingdom message. 
But looking back, having more revelation, we now see the whole big picture. And it all makes sense to us. And so it is with our lives. We often don't understand, and that is when we need to trust God with the truth. Even when it doesn't make sense to us, we have the promise that all things do work together for good for those that love God. God is bigger than our circumstances. And everything ultimately has a a purpose in the big scheme of things. And God only asks that we trust Him, that we trust Him. And finally, as we study the totality of Scripture, we find two great themes in relation to the Messiah. There's a suffering theme and there's a glory theme. And those are two different streams. But they're both represented in the prophetic Scriptures. Christ, after his resurrection from the dead, said to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, then he said to them, O foolish ones, which is always an interesting way to begin a conversation. O foolish ones, and slow, you're slow, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. It, It all needs to be taken in. And here's the whole big picture. Ought not the Christ, the Messiah, to have suffered? They missed the suffering theme. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Suffering first, then glory. Peter said the same thing. First Peter chapter 1. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. They're trying to figure the details out. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what... Or what manner of time? They're trying to figure out the timing of all of this. The Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand. Beforehand. That's the Old Testament prophecies. Testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. And the glories that would follow. First the sufferings, then the glory. Now we see... But they didn't see this at Christ's first coming. They had to kind of all lump together. Now we see, yes, clearly, there's a first coming, the suffering culminating in the cross. All God's sovereign plan and purposes. And then there's a second coming, the glory that is yet to come. It all fits in the person of Jesus Christ perfectly. The prophetic truth of the scripture not only tells of the kingdom glory, but also of the suffering servant. This too had to be fulfilled. Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected. The builders, the leaders, the spiritual leaders, the governmental leaders, the builders... The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Again, this all fits with the truth of Jesus being the Messiah. Many other passages could be noted in terms of this suffering theme. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, etc. Daniel chapter 9. And here's what we see. The way of Christ is first the way of the cross. And then the way of glory. First the cross, then the crown. And that is true also of those who follow Christ. 
Today, many want the way of kingdom glory, and we want it now. And who doesn't? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come. Yeah, we want it. But many really want to claim and champion this theme for the here and now. But at the same time, it seems there's precious little emphasis on the way of the cross. You know, where we live in this in-between time, this time of kingdom delay, is characterized largely by the rejection of Christ as also seen in the rejection of those who are his followers. Today, we live in the way of the cross. This is our calling. The kingdom, the crown, and the glory are to follow. Why did the world hate Christ? And make no mistake, they hated him. Why? Well, he tells us why they hated him. John 7, 7, he's telling his unbelieving brothers at this point, they were unbelieving. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that its works are evil. You know, the world doesn't want to hear that they're lost. They're on their way to hell. Everybody wants to hear the nice, warm fuzzies all the time. Jesus didn't do that. He testified that his works are evil. You got a sin problem, an evil problem. If you want the world to love you, just don't speak out against the, the evil, the evil of its works. You say, well, that's not very loving. Well, yeah, Christ, he wasn't always very loving either, right? Sarcasm. The most loving thing you do is tell people the truth. Now, you do it in love. Of course, that's what motivates you, to tell them the truth. But if you dare to expose the, the evil of the world, they're going to hate you for it. Let's start with the issue of immorality. That's what John the Baptist was all about. He got his head cut off for it. He should have been a little more tactful. Should have took a little more time. Should have been a little more gracious. Should have been a little more soft. And everything would have worked out fine. Well, you can take that up with him when you get to heaven. I'm not going to accuse him of doing anything wrong. If you take a stand against sin, the world will hate you for it. It's true of Christ, true of his followers. You know what Christ said? Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. I think it's one of the worst testimonies in the world. Everybody loved him. Oh my, there's a problem, isn't there? Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. I mean, if you don't have a few enemies that hate you, hopefully for the right reasons. <laughs> I mean, if, if it's just your own <laughs> ugliness, that's, that's not what we're talking about. The true prophets, you see, the true prophets called the people out on their sin. And they were consistently hated for it. And we don't like to do that, right? I don't like, I like friends. I, I like people to like me. I mean, I don't get up in the morning and say, I wonder who I can, I can really rile up today. I don't, I don't approach life that way. I like, I like friends. I like to get along with everybody. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, said to the religious leaders of his day. He said this. And boy, talk about bold. These guys were bold. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who told, who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Here is the full truth of the matter. Yes, the kingdom is on its way, 
But in the meantime, if you want to take a real stand against sin, you might get your head cut off for it. And I, really, I don't really want my head cut off. You? I mean, come up. We're having an altar call. <laughs> we don't want that. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for anybody. But if it is the sovereign will of God, he must increase. I must decrease. They beheaded John for speaking out against sin. They crucified the Christ. And do we think we should get a pass? You know, Paul says, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12. He didn't say, well, maybe. You'll live a really godly life and nobody's going nobody's to bother you. No, no, expect it. Is that not what Peter said? Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Uh, this, this, you say, what's that? What? Uh, this shouldn't be happening to me. I'm a good guy. I'm, I'm one of the good guys. I'm one of the good... Uh, I should, you know, I should be immune. No, 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 no. Don't think it's strange. This is, this is the norm. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. As we present the truth of Christ, we can expect a dual response. Some will appreciate it. Others will hate it. You know, as I preached the gospel at my father's funeral, which was my high honor to do so, some loved it. Others, not so much. And I won't tell you the things that they said to me because some of them might be listening in and that would be embarrassing. <laughs> but they made it pretty clear. Some did not appreciate this. Uh, some said things to me like, I really appreciate what you said about the family, but the message, the message. And in a strange way, as I thought about it, initially I kind of go, mm. but as I thought about it, it was strangely encouraging. If we're doing our job, we should expect this dual response pretty consistently. You know, is this not what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 15 and 16? For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death, leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life, leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? He goes on to say in chapter 3, we are not sufficient for anything. Our sufficiency is of God. To those in rebellion and unrepentant, the aroma of death is offensive. And they don't appreciate it. Don't expect them to. But for those who are repentant and putting their faith in Christ, the message is the aroma of life. And everyone is in one of those two categories. I love this from the diary of John Wesley. Just a few days. This is just a little, a little piece from his diary. And he says, Sunday a.m., May 5th, preach at St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday p.m., May 5th, preach at St. John's. Deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday a.m., May 12th, preach at St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday a.m., May 19th, preach in St. Somebody Else's. Deacons called a special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday p.m., May 19th, preach on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday a.m., May 26th, preach in a meadow, chased out of the meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. (laughs) Sunday a.m., June 2nd, preach out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday p.m., June 2nd, afternoon, preaching a pastor. 10,000 people came out to hear me. Part of the proof of Jesus being the real Messiah 
was the rejection that he and the forerunner John the Baptist experienced. God is in charge of the results, but until Christ returns, we can expect that many will reject, but some also will respond in saving faith. Our job, as Paul said in his last words to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. What people do with it, that, that's God's work. That's people's, you know, it's, it's on them. Above all, may God help us to be faithful to his word and leave the results with him. You know, one, my favorite chapter in the Bible is Romans chapter 8. And uh, some of the verses that I often shared with my dad in recent days, I often made my way to Romans chapter 8. And I would read to him Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the setting of those verses is very interesting. In context, the verses right before that, in Romans 8, 36 and 37, read, As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded. God help us to be faithful. In the way of the cross. And then we will share in the crown as more than conquerors. Now is the way of the cross. God help us to be faithful in that way. Let's stand and have our closing song.